everybody what it do what it do hope everybody's having a lovely morning out there um we do have some good news this morning the good news is that the very first coronavirus vaccine was administered i believe it's to a a nurse in queens i think i'm getting that right it might be a different part of the city but don't quote me on that i think it's for a, a nurse in queens and um so here we go. Listen, I mean, the uh, the optimistic view is now the vaccine exists. Now it's being distributed. We're going to do that at a thousand miles an hour as fast as we can ramp up production. That's as fast as we're going to spread it across the country. So, you know, I don't know. You tell me what's the shortest timeline where we feel like we could maybe get back to some semblance of normalcy. Six months, something like that. I mean, I think that's really optimistic. I think it could be anywhere from six months to two and a half years. I'm telling you the truth. Um, But, hey, at least the ball is rolling. At least the ball is rolling. So, I mean, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, That is the good news of the day. But I have plenty of bad news of the day that we'll talk about. So, I want to get into the fight between... Justin Jackson, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Jimmy Dore. Obviously, I have very, very strong opinions on this. And if you follow me on Twitter, you could tell because I was tweeting about it nonstop for the past, like, three days or whatever it was. Um, We have the Iowa autopsy report, and we have some conclusions about the DNC and how apparently they were the ones who were most to blame. Some sketchy, sketchy stuff was going on. I do have segments on that Biden call with civil rights leaders. That was ugly. That was not pretty at all by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Then we have Bernie Sanders and Josh Hawley teamed up for stimulus checks, trying to get some stimulus checks in there. I'll be covering the MSNBC 
smearing of Bernie Sanders. Um, I'm, I'm all over the place today. I'm everywhere. We got more on the investigations into Donald Trump. So, okay, let's go ahead and get started without further ado. Like I said, we'll lead with the big fight on the left. So Jimmy Dore has been advocating for the idea of the left withholding their vote from Pelosi for speaker unless she commits to a floor vote on Medicare for all. This is something he's been advocating for for a while now. Um, And he's been aggressive. In fact, he's doing, you know, he's basically, he's done interviews like he went on uh, Rising with Crystal and Sagar to talk about this. He's trying to spread the message as far and wide as he can because he really believes in it. And he thinks that, you know, we should demand something for our votes because, and this happened last time too, we were told that, hey, the furthest left, left option uh, to be leader of the Democrats is Nancy Pelosi. So it's either Nancy Pelosi or somebody way to her right. So in that situation, who are you going to pick to be leader of the Democrats? And it really is the oldest establishment trick in the book. You give somebody all terrible options, and then you pick the best among the terrible options, and you pretend like it's some sort of victory for the left. And again, it's a trick. It's a trick. And, you know, I fell for it just like everybody else. I mean, I was thinking, well, if there's only, if those are the only options and she's the furthest left option, I guess, right? But no, see, now you've had more time to organize since the last time they tried this trick on us. And you didn't organize to come up with a better option? Honestly, that's a giant failure of the left. You have to organize. We can't just always accept a terrible option among all bad options and then pretend like it's some sort of victory. Now, what happened last time is the more conservative Democrats played hardball with Pelosi and she conceded to them because they played hardball with her. So what Jimmy's doing is he's advocating that the Justice Democrats and really the Congressional Progressive Caucus or a large chunk of the Congressional Progressive Caucus withhold your votes. I think all you need is anywhere from 8 to 15 votes Um, of the leftist Congress people, if they withhold their votes and they say, listen, we'll vote for you, but you have to have Medicare for all for a floor vote. If they do that, then we'll get a floor vote on Medicare for all. That's what will happen. You know, you could try to pass the buck and say, oh, well, then she won't do that. And then somebody to her right will be elected. Well, what does it matter if somebody to her right is elected, if she's not going to allow the floor vote on Medicare for all, and the person to her right isn't going to allow the floor vote on Medicare for all, then, you know, it's the same thing either way. So who cares if it's Pelosi or not in that situation? And you don't have to pass the buck. The onus is on her. So in other words, yeah, she can be speaker, but, you know, you're just going to have to allow a floor vote on Medicare for all. This is how you play politics. You organize. You strategize. This is what you do. So um, Jimmy's been pushing this idea. And listen, this wasn't even really a controversial idea, so much so that Sam Cedar, who despises Jimmy Dore, even Sam Cedar did a segment a week or so ago, or maybe two weeks ago, and he was like, I think Jimmy got this one right. I think this is what the leftist Congress people should do. Yeah, demand something for your vote. Duh. Like, this is politics. This is politics 101. Um, so Jimmy's been making these criticisms. Now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has not responded to Jimmy, but what happened was Justin Jackson um, – running back for the L.A. Chargers. And actually, um, he's a friend of mine. I really like him. Uh, we talk every now and then. Um, so 
he, I know I was just a humble brag right there. <laughs> that was a little bit insufferable. I agree. But I just wanted to tell you, I like Justin. He's a friend of mine. Um, and he understands this stuff inside and, inside and out as well as anybody. So, um, you know, Justin Jackson has been seeing this campaign that Jimmy Dore has been doing. And he's like, yeah, this is a no brainer. Let's do this. So Justin, Justin Jackson tweets at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I'm not going to, I won't show them to you, but I'll just read them for you. Um, he said the following, if AOC and the squad don't do what Jimmy Dore has suggested and withhold their vote uh, for Pelosi for speakership, unless Medicare for All gets brought to the floor for a vote, they will be revealing themselves. Power concedes nothing without a demand. So AOC didn't respond to Jimmy with Jimmy's campaign, but she saw this tweet from Justin Jackson. According to Justin, she's responded to him previously. So she responded to him and she said, the problem with this idea is that there isn't enough thought given to step two. The Dem voters aren't there yet. And with a razor thin margin, the Dem knows um, are greater. So you issue threats, withhold your vote and lose. Then what? If you want to know who's opposed, look at the co-sponsor list. Now, before I continue, let me just say the co-sponsor list is bullshit. There's 118 that on paper support Medicare for all. But if you demand a vote, you will find out who really supports Medicare for all. Because I'm sure you guys remember, Kamala was one of the first in the Senate to sign on to Bernie's Medicare for all bill. And then under the slightest bit of scrutiny and pressure from the media, she immediately abandoned it. So just because somebody says, oh, yeah, I'm for this in theory, if it if you actually have to vote on it, that's when you find out who's really for it and not for it. So that's not, that's not a good point. Oh, just look at the, the co-sponsor list. No, you need to actually force them to vote on it, and then we find out who's really for it and who's not for it. And there will be plenty who jump ship. And by the way, there might even be plenty who nominally are not for it now who then vote for it if we apply the proper amount of pressure, which is, again, a point that I'll get back to. Um, so she's saying, oh, you know, this isn't, this isn't strategic enough is basically her argument. She says, she continues, in contrast, you can leverage to push for things that can happen and change lives, i.e. a $15 minimum wage vote uh, in the first 100 days. She says, doable. Elevating longtime progressive champions to important positions of leadership, also doable. That's the opportunity cost to weigh. So there's a, there's a few things to say in response to that. First of all, the House already passed a $15 minimum wage bill. You already passed it. And, it, you know, Mitch McConnell's blocking it. Would I love to see a, a public pressure campaign around the $15 minimum wage where all the Democrats go out there and hit the media and blame Mitch McConnell? Of course I would. But we already passed $15 minimum wage through the House. So to say, no, 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 let's not do that. Let's try to get a $15 minimum wage. Okay, mission accomplished. You already achieved that. So it's not a response. And you say, oh, let's elevate, uh, you know, let's get progressives more committee assignments because then we can impact policy more is the point she's making. Totally agree. Condition that as well. Like this is what you do. Yes, you condition that. But why are you setting it up as an either or? Like either we do Medicare for all or we do these things that are more doable. Or you can demand both committee assignments that we get more progressive legislation and you can demand a vote on Medicare for all. $50 minimum wage, again, it already passed. So that's on the Senate now. You want to continue a public pressure campaign? Totally agree with you. But don't act like, oh, that's doable and Medicare for all isn't, so let's focus on that. No, you already passed a $50 minimum wage. You already did that. And I don't really care. Again, we'll come back to this idea of doable or not doable in a second, okay? Um, so Justin saw what she said, 
And listen, like I said, he knows this stuff inside and out. He knows it just as well as I do and just as well as most of you do. So he said, why aren't they there? Talking about, you know, politicians and whether or not they're for or against Medicare for all. He's saying, why aren't they there? The people of the party are there. So the voters are there. Over what? 85% of Democrats are for Medicare for all. It's not acceptable that leadership isn't there. If they have no threat of not staying in leadership, what's the point? Pelosi was speaker for two years with no Medicare for all vote. What is your plan to force her to get a vote? So in other words, he's saying, listen, okay, you're telling me that now's not the right time. You're telling me, wait for a more convenient season. Where have I heard that before? That's right, Martin Luther King. He was talking about the white moderate and the problem with the white moderate. Um, so she's saying, this isn't strategic. You've got to wait for a more convenient season. And he's like, okay, so what's your plan? You're telling me to wait, so give me your plan. Are we going to vote on it a year from now? Two years from now? What are the steps that you're, you're, how are you getting the ball rolling to get to this end goal? And see, that's one of the things where people are really showing their hand um, when discussing this issue is that they'll reject Jimmy's plan and then they just won't give their own plan, which means really you're saying, let's not have a vote on Medicare for all and let's leave it at that for now. So in other words, that's a defense of the status quo. That's exactly what that is. That's not up in the air. That's not a question. That's the definition of a defense of the status quo. I I reject your plan and I'm not even going to give you my own plan and tell you when we can eventually vote on it and the steps that we need to do in order to get there. So Justin Jackson sniffs that out and is like, okay, what's your plan? AOC responds, why aren't they there is the real question. We watched the presidential debates and saw how many fiercely defend our for-profit insurance system. But know that the movement pressure, positive support, primaries, popularity, organizing, etc., is working. More co-sponsors now than ever. Okay, so, but see, now that's weird because she's advocating for the exact same thing Justin Jackson is advocating for and Jimmy Dore is advocating for, but they're actually like, now's the time, pedal to the metal, we're going to do all that right now as we force the vote on Medicare for all. And her response is basically, no, like, all those things are good, but let's do all the organizing, let's do all the grassroots pressure, and not have the vote now. I mean, that's like, honestly, I just find that idea so incredibly silly. Like, what are you going to do? Organize a, let's organize a big strike with the demand of not having a floor vote on Medicare for all. <laughs> like, what, what are you talking about? So in theory, do all the work to get us there, but don't vote on it now. And I won't tell you when in the future we could vote on it, but just do the work, and then I guess we'll circle back to it. And again, she says more co-sponsors now than ever. That's not the real test. The real test is when it's up for a vote. Because a lot of those people are going to abandon ship because they're just doing it for virtue signaling and for messaging, and you're letting them get away with it. you got to hold their feet to the fire. So Justin responds, I would love for Democrats to be on the record denying their constituents health care during a pandemic. Sounds like good politics for the progressive movement and our goals. So do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, okay, let's see everybody's true colors. And if somebody, if a Democrat votes against universal health care during a pandemic, they just help the left massively because now you know who your enemies are, who your targets are, who you organize against. And if the left knew how to message and strategize and organize, you can win campaigns on that issue alone. 
You can win more seats on this, this issue alone. My opponent voted against universal health care in the middle of a pandemic where 300,000 Americans died and where tens of millions of Americans are hemorrhaging their health insurance. So this is Justin Jackson teaching a politician, hey, here's why the politics of this are intelligent. So it's not just the correct thing in principle, which it is, it's also the correct thing in terms of strategy. Go ahead, vote against Medicare for all in a pandemic. I want to see it. I want to see it. That'll be one of those things where it'll go down in the history books as shameful. 50 years from now, 100 years from now, people look back and say, holy shit, the party that was supposed to be the left party, half of them voted against universal health care in a pandemic? Justin Jackson is saying, force their hand, and then we win either way. Because if, if we win the vote, okay, Medicare for all gets through the House. If we lose, okay, we lost, but you win by losing because then you expose who the charlatans and the con men and the frauds are, and you use that against them, and you get more left victories as a result of that. This isn't rocket science. Okay. Um, then AOC responds and says, I respect that. And in an important way, they are on the record. There are 118 House Dems who have publicly, agree- uh, publicly signed on to guaranteed health care during this term. They are listed here. Again, the co-sponsor list can be used for toilet paper because that's not how the actual votes will break down. And if you think that is how it will break down, you're just naive because we saw exactly what happened with Kamala Harris. And we know how these politicians are giant virtue signalers. It's one of the oldest tricks in the book that you sign on to these great pieces of legislation when you know it's going to be blocked either by a Republican president or a Republican Senate. But when you actually get power, what you do shows your true agenda. And so what happened? There was all this talk about Medicare for all, Medicare for all, Medicare for all. Then the Democrats took the, took the House and we didn't even get a vote on the House on Medicare for all. So, like, that's the real test. I don't know how many times I could say it. And everybody knows deep down that's the real test. And you know, by the way, you don't have to tell me this because I was part of the giant campaign to try to get more co-sponsors for Medicare for all. I was part of that campaign. I did it. Jake Uger did it. Jimmy Dore did it. Don't you guys remember? I came out here and did segments and said, call your congresspeople. Because there was a time when it was only like 10 or something Congress people who were for Medicare for all on paper. And so we did a giant campaign and we got it all the way up to 118. We're one of the reasons why that happened because we wanted to apply public pressure. So I was one of the people who pushed for that. But I'm telling you, and I knew back then and I know it now, that's step one. Step two is now let's see you actually vote for it when it comes time for a vote. So let's have a vote. So um, now that was the end of their back and forth. Now let's talk about the strategy angle of it and the principle angle of it. So one of the reasons why, yes, you should withhold your vote for Pelosi unless she agrees to a Medicare for all vote is because you need to get people on the record so we know who to primary. Like I said, that list of 118 co-sponsors, it's useless. We'll know when they actually vote on it, who did the right thing when push came to shove and who didn't. And I suspect you'll have some that'll abandon ship. I also suspect you'll be able to knock off some and get them to vote for it who currently are not for it because we are going to do a public pressure campaign like nobody has ever seen before. So that's the first thing. You get them on the record. We know who our enemies are, and you message on this nonstop. And then the second thing is you shift the Overton window in your favor. And this is copying the Tea Party. Guys, what the Tea Party did worked. The Tea Party was such a pain in the ass for Republican leadership that two Republican leaders stepped down because they couldn't handle 
the, the disagreement they were getting from their right. So the Tea Party hated Republican leadership as much as they hated Democratic leadership. And to the point where the Republican leadership was like, I'm out, I can't deal with these people. So they were at odds all the time. They were fighting all the time. Now compare that to the Justice Democrats, and I love them. I helped a lot of them get elected, but they're calling Nancy Pelosi mama bear. And they think that, it's not nefarious, they think that, oh, if I go along to get along more, then we'll get more progressive victories because you want to be on their good side because if you're on their good side, then they'll do more for you. That's the thought process. But again, that thought process just happens to be dead wrong. So what you do is you pick a fight. It's a shot across the bow. No, no, no. We're not going to take this laying down anymore. We're going to fight back. We're going to organize. We're going to strategize. We're going to be aggressive. We're going to shift the Overton window. That's what we're going to do. So again, you have the vote. If you win, you win. And the public pressure campaign would be instrumental in making that happen. But if you lose, you still win. Because then you know who your enemies are, and you have a talking point for the rest of your life. I fought to get universal health care during a pandemic. And these cretins didn't because they're corrupt corporatists who are doing the bidding of the for-profit health insurance companies and big pharma. And then the other thing is, you brag about your morality. You see, this is the thing that the left doesn't understand is that they always are responding to the terms of the debate and the discussion laid down by the center or the right. They're never changing the debate landscape where it's like, no, you're going to have to answer to me. You're going to have to go and explain to people why 300,000 Americans can die. You look at that crisis and you still don't say, okay, now's the time that we really got to take this next step and do a universal health care system. It took World War II for a lot of the European countries to do universal national health care systems. And the idea is, hey, we're in a crisis. Everything is terrible. We need to rebuild from scratch, so why not do this because it makes sense. And now we have a pandemic with 300,000 Americans dead, tens of millions losing their health insurance, and you have people on the left saying – no, 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 now's not the time to push for, for uh, Medicare for All. Then when is the time? When is the time? Here's another quote from Martin Luther King for you. The time is always right to do what is right. Now, it's going to be tough. Like, that's the thing. People act like we don't know that. Like, of course we know that. Uh, uh, duh, duh, duh. It's the most obvious thing in the world. Of course it's going to be tough. But if you have... 500,000 Americans angrily calling Congress, filling up their voicemails. If you have an ocean of protesters descend on D.C. on this specific issue, you can scare the pants off of them. You can scare them into submission. It's a situation where 70% of the country already agrees this is the right thing to do. You know what else was difficult? If you're in 1959 in Mississippi and you're fighting for desegregation, that's difficult. People are going to laugh you out of the state. That's what would happen. They'd be like, look at this pie-in-the-sky idealist. Don't be ridiculous. But now you look back, and you're like, oh, that was sort of a no-brainer, and the moral stand was necessary, which gets to the final point on this, which is I think there are clear strategic reasons to force the vote on Medicare for All and how it could work for the left even if the left loses. But let's put that aside for a second. 
the principle is what matters oftentimes, where even if the strategy wasn't there, on principle alone, there are certain things you should do. Because if you're in politics for the right reasons, this is how you derive your meaning and your purpose. So the whole point of being there is the process of fighting to get these things that are morally correct and ethically correct implemented. If you're not there for that reason, then why are you there? Careerism? Self-aggrandizement? Playing the game? Tribalism? Like, what's the reason? What's the point? If you're not going to dot every I, cross every T, do everything imaginable in order to bring this about. And this is my, my difference with a lot of people who are the elected justice Democrats, um, is that I was clear from the beginning. I always wanted a hostile takeover. Hostile takeover. You're not going to win by doing the same old, same old, which is kowtowing and bending to the system to accommodate it and doing tit for tat with the leadership and trying to get favors. Leftists have been trying that forever, and it never worked. The only power you have as a leftist congressperson is people power, is the bully pulpit. Use it. Use it. Tell people, we're going to protest for Medicare for all. We're going to do it in Washington, D.C. I want to see a million people in the streets. I want 500,000 phone calls to Congress. I want you to scare them into doing the right thing. I don't care if, as long as they vote the right way, I don't care how they got there, so make them get there. You got to, by any means necessary that are nonviolent and moral and ethical, that's what we're going to do. And that's why I say you need a hostile takeover. I get shit from people to my left because I'm a deep believer in reform over revolution. I think there's no chance in hell to win a revolution. So what you need to do is use the institutions and use the available path to your advantage any way you can. And the only way that would work is a hostile takeover. You need to be comfortable with having democratic leadership be your enemy. You need to be comfortable with having the media be your enemy. You need to lean into those fights. And in the process of leaning into those fights, you get more and more and more popular. These institutions and these leaders, they're paper tigers. Nobody likes them. Nancy Pelosi has an approval rating around 20%. And people are scared to take her on? Are you kidding me? You should say yummy in my tummy. This is the first thing I want to do is take her on. I get it, though. It's tough for them because they feel like no matter how much they say they believe in democracy, it's overwhelming. It's scary. It, it gives you anxiety when you're part of these institutions. You're in these institutions. And you look around and you think, well, there's got to be some reason for like the meritocracy of this and the hierarchy of this. You start to believe that people earned their positions. Like, yeah, Nancy Pelosi's been here for so long, and so she worked her way up. So who am I? If I'm just a, you know, I've only been here for a few years and I'm a congressperson, who the hell am I to stand up to this behemoth who's earned her place and worked her way up the ladder? And really, you just have to break that mindset because that mindset is not true. There is no meritocracy. There is no legitimate hierarchy in Washington, D.C. Usually the people who rise to the top are the most corrupt. It's the swamp. That is true. It's the swamp. So if you're the biggest corporatist and you're the biggest sellout, that's how you get far. So you need to take these people on and call out the absurdity of it all. Call out the absurdity of not even voting on Medicare for all during a pandemic. So anyway, listen, Jimmy Dore's right. 
Jimmy Dore's right. Justin Jackson is right. Of course you force this vote. And if you win, you win. If you lose, you still win because you just got everybody on record. We know who our enemies are. We know who we're going to primary. We know how to mobilize and how to organize. Like, people don't understand how big of an incentive it is when you have hundreds of thousands of people in the street telling politicians they have to do something. People don't understand how big of an incentive it is when somebody's, when a congressperson's voicemail fills up in an hour and a half because there's so many angry calls saying, you're doing this. How could you not do this? You never know what we can achieve until we try. But like I said, even if we lose, we still win because then you have a strategy in place to use this for our advantage. Use it for our advantage when it comes to messaging. When it comes to the races in 2022, we're the people who fought for you to get healthcare in a pandemic. These other people didn't do that. But even if you want to put all that aside, where I just said, remember this point. You can't say, oh, I agree with your goal, but not your methods. If Number one, you say, let's not vote on the thing that we both agree is good. And number two, you don't have your own plan that gives us a timeline of when we could get this implemented. Because at that point, whether or not you realize it, you are just gaslighting to protect the status quo. That's what that is. It's a defense of the status quo. I mean, in her original ad, she, was, she said very clearly, no, we could do this now. We could do this now. Green New Deal, Medicare for all, now. Now we're hearing a different argument. She's wrong. Jimmy Dore's right. Justin Jackson is right. Let's lean into this fight, man. What are we waiting for? There's never going to be a better time than during a pandemic. I get it. You don't have the numbers. So get to work on that. People use that argument to rationalize not doing anything, taking their ball and going home. No, if you say we don't have the numbers, well, then I, bet you, I guess you better get to work on that. Oh, my God, it's really hard. Oh, my God, how are we going to do it? Oh, my God. This is what I've been trying to tell you guys. I've been saying it for years now. You know, it, you coalition build where you can coalition build. And when you can't coalition build and somebody makes clear that they're your enemy politically, okay, now the fight is on. Now we're going to have public, uh, you know, pressure campaigns against you. And I'll use any argument that's going to work, any argument that's going to destroy you, I'll Quote the exact amount of money that you've taken from for-profit health insurance companies. How do you like them apples? I'll run ads on it. I will do anything I can to get this implemented. There's always an excuse. There's always a reason. The Tea Party never made excuses. They just did it. They just acted. And even when they lost, they won because they shifted that Overton window. So it's time to actually use their tactics. Actually use their tactics. Make leadership hate you. Make the media hate you. Lean into this fight. This is ridiculous. 300,000 Americans dead, and we can't even get the left to say, let's have a vote on universal health care. It's a sick joke, and everybody sees through it. Okay, next.
So we have an Iowa autopsy report. And um, this is interesting because we all remember, remember the debacle that was the Iowa caucus. Was it really a debacle or was it like nefarious on purpose? I guess that's the question that's up in the air. And this report tries to give us some answers, however satisfying or not satisfying they are. So Politico says, Iowa autopsy report, DNC meddling led to caucus debacle. State party audit finds plenty of blame to go around. Democratic National Committee meddling combined with missteps by the state Democratic Party were the primary drivers of the chaos that torpedoed the Iowa caucuses earlier this year, according to a new audit commissioned by the state party. The report, which was distributed to the Iowa Democratic Party State Central Committee at a meeting Saturday morning and obtained by Politico, identified a series of errors made by the DNC, IDP, and the technology company contracted by the state party to build a reporting app to collect caucus results. The February caucuses were overrun by foul-ups. The state party was unable to report a winner on caucus night. The mobile app to report results failed to work for many precinct chairs. The backup telephone systems were jammed and some precincts had initial reporting errors. The state party chair, Troy Price, resigned in the wake of the debacle, which put Iowa's status as the first in the nation nominating contest in serious jeopardy. But the report pins the blame squarely on the DNC for the heart of the problem on caucus night. The delay in the reporting of the results, according to the report, the DNC demanded the technology company, Shadow, build a conversion tool just weeks before the caucuses to allow the DNC to have real-time access to the raw numbers because the National Party feared the app would miscalculate the results. The DNC's data system used a different database format than Shadow's reporting app, which caused multiple problems. Quote, attempting to graft an entirely new software element onto the back-end reporting system at the proverbial 11th hour is likely always going to be problematic, and it was ultimately the cause of a major problem on caucus night, the report concludes. Furthermore, the IDP was not involved in the development of this tool. The IDP simply permitted the DNC to direct the IDP's vendor. The audit states the conversion tool had coding errors that spit out inaccurate numbers and caused confusion about the accuracy of the results, eventually leading to delays in reporting, but the state party's app never malfunctioned nor was hacked, the report concludes. That's the part that made me pause. That's the part that made me pause. I'm going to read it one more time. The audit states the conversion tool had coding errors that spit out inaccurate numbers and caused confusion about the accuracy of the results, eventually leading to delays in reporting. But the state party's app never malfunctioned nor was hacked, the report concludes. Didn't malfunction and it wasn't hacked, but there were coding errors that spit out inaccurate numbers. I mean, listen, we have the discussions at the time. You had the campaigns of many of the corporate Democrats help fund the creation of this app. Mayor Pete's team helped fund the creation of this app. And then you had Mayor Pete go out there and declare victory early. You had, by the way, the certifying of incorrect results. And I remember this because um, Daniel on Twitter by the way, not a conspiracy theorist by any stretch of the imagination. He's as data-based as it gets. 
And he was going through the results and saying, okay, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong. And it all added up to Pete basically winning what is, in essence, a state electoral college victory, while Bernie had the popular vote victory. And again, they certified incorrect results. And now I read a line like that. The audit states the conversion tool had coding errors that spit out inaccurate numbers and caused confusion about the accuracy of the results. But the, state's part, the state party's app never malfunctioned, nor was hacked. I mean, listen, I only go where the evidence points me, okay? So I'm not here to give you conclusions about exactly what happened here. But I am here to say, this is fishy as hell, dog. This is fishy as hell. Especially given the fact that, like, Mayor Pete did well in, like, the first two states, and then he fell off the map and was nothing the rest of the way. Nothing. How does that happen? How does such a thing happen? It's just sketchy. It's just incredibly sketchy. It stinks to high heaven. The kindest interpretation of this is extreme, wanton incompetence. That's the kindest interpretation of this. Obviously, the least kind interpretation is they tried to rig it and kind of did rig it. So I don't know. I'll leave it up to you. You guys determine. But either way, it's bad. Either way, it's ridiculous. Either way, it makes no sense. How long have we been having elections for and you can't come up with a system that gives accurate results quickly? Of course you can, but they didn't do it. And then you read all this fishy stuff and you look at the funding of the app and you're like, you know, I guess the thought that always kind of pops in my mind is that we have documented records. We have history of meddling in foreign elections and trying to overthrow the results or rig the results. Like this is all, it's on record. Like we know about it. There's history of it. It's been proven. We also just do brute force and overthrow governments, right? Like we send the military in or do some covert operation and, and try to do it. Everybody just sort of assumes that there are these moral lines of like, yeah, but we, obviously we wouldn't do that here, right? Right? I don't know, dog. I think there's a reason why, for example, the majority of Americans still think that we don't have the real story on JFK. Not to get all conspiracy theorists on everybody, but yeah, polls show that a majority of Americans still don't buy the official story as to how JFK was killed. They think there's a nefarious plot that goes a lot deeper. There's some theories the mafia was involved. There's some, some theories the CIA was involved. Soviet Union, Cuba, like there's all these theories. But that's one where people are just like, no, it just doesn't line up enough. It's, it's too sketchy. I feel like what happened in Iowa is another great example of that. It's just like, there's so much stuff here. There's so much smoke that you just sort of assume there's fire. But like I said, being as objective as I could possibly be, either you have extreme incompetence or you have nefarious attempt at rigging. Heavy-handed attempt at rigging as well, might I add, if indeed it was rigged, because it was like <laughs> everything was out in like public view. Like him, Mayor Pete declaring victory when he didn't win. Like, it was all just out there in the open, and we were watching it in real time going, are you, are you kidding me? Like, what is going on here? So it really is terrifying, isn't it? When you look at what happened in 2016 with Bernie Sanders and the WikiLeaks that came out that showed it was effectively rigged against Bernie in 2016, and then this is how 
Iowa unfolded. But really, ultimately, the thing that did Bernie in, and you know this, and I know this as well because we talked about it endlessly, but it was that last-minute consolidation of the centrist vote as Elizabeth Warren stayed in and kept siphoning votes from Bernie. It was just a perfect storm of nonsense. And then also Bernie didn't know how to adjust once it was him versus Biden, and he honestly ran a terrible campaign as soon as it was head-to-head from then on. But I'm get, I feel like I have PTSD just going back and reading about the Iowa caucuses. So they're putting the blame squarely on the DNC here. The, you know, and at the time, if I remember correctly, I feel like the Iowa State Party was getting most of the blame, and they were clearly uncomfortable with that, and they were feeling like they've been forced to do things they didn't want to do. And now you see, like, that is what happened. What happened was they were forced to change something at the last minute. And whatever they did to change it, you know, whatever this system was to get more accurate results, um, it was a square peg, round hole situation, and it made things worse. I'm not going to be able to get that line out of my head, though. The audit states the conversion tool had coding errors that spit out inaccurate numbers and caused confusion about the accuracy of the results, eventually leading to delays in reporting. But the state party's app never malfunctioned, nor was it hacked. Read that line about 20 times. (laughs) It'll do a number on your head. Okay. All right, Biden had a meeting. Let's talk about this one here. Joe Biden had a meeting with civil rights leaders. Uh, Ryan Grimm was able to obtain the video and the audio. Here's the portion. This is one of the portions that blew up. It's Biden talking about executive orders. And so there's some things that I'm going to be able to do by executive order. I'm not going to hesitate to do it. But what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to do what used to, the need of you probably used to get angry with me during the debates, when you'd have some of the people you were supposed to have, on day one, I'm going to executive order to do this. Not within the constitutional authority. I am not going to violate the Constitution. Executive authority that my progressive friends talk about is way beyond the bounds. And as one of you said, maybe you were ever now, whether it's far left or far right, there is a constitution. It's our only hope, our only hope. And the way to deal with it is where I have executive authority, I will use it to undo every single damn thing this guy has done by executive authority. But I'm not going to exercise executive authority where it's questioned, where I can come along and say, I can do away with assault weapons. There's no executive authority to do any of that. And no one's fought harder to get rid of assault weapons than me. Me. But you can't do it by executive order. If you do that, next guy comes along and says, well, guess what? By executive order, I guess everybody can own machine guns again. So, first of all, This idea that, oh, if we open the door to using a lot of executive orders, well, then the right will just use them, too, and we don't want to open that door because then they'll do it. 
no, they're going to do it no matter what, because they believe in exercising their power as much as possible, and they actually don't give a damn about institutional principles. You know, it's why they talk out of one side of their mouth and say, oh, we believe in small government as a matter of principle. And then out of the other side of the mouth, their mouth, they're like, let me sign a thousand executive orders on a thousand issues and flex my authority. And I remember this during the Bush administration. They believed in um, a theory of power called the unitary executive theory. And the idea is, yeah, act like a dictator as much as humanly possible. Use as much executive authority as possible. And again, this is at the same time that conservatives claim they believe in small government and they don't want a strong executive branch. They want a weakened executive branch. They want a government that's small enough to drown in the bathtub, to quote, I think it was Reagan or somebody from that era who, who said that. Um, so it's not like, Joe, if you do all these executive orders, well, then you're giving a green light to the conservatives. The conservatives are going to use executive orders no matter what. Trump did a lot of executive orders. So there is no real principled belief in small government. That's the first point. Second point is, listen, all these things are open to interpretation. The idea that it's very clear in the Constitution what is in the realm of the president, what is in the realm of uh, Congress and the legislative branch, what's in the realm of the judicial branch. Like, yes, there's a, a broad outline there, but there are there are really, really good convincing arguments for any approach. So there are good legal arguments for a more expansive executive uh, branch or executive authority. And there's good arguments against, you know, an expansive approach to executive authority. It's just a matter of what do you believe in? And, and the argument he's making here is fundamentally a conservative argument. You know, the conservatives don't even believe in what they say they believe in. They're hypocrites on that front. They'll use executive power to flex authority, of course. But Biden's actually making the conservative case here. Like, no, 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 I need to stick by the Constitution and how it's laid out and limit my authority. And it's like, okay, then in some ways you're just flat out conservative. You, you embody that label even more than the Republicans do, which is kind of funny. And it really does fit in line with how he calls himself, well, how he is, he doesn't call himself this, this but he basically is a moderate Republican. Um, so this is a white flag, ladies and gentlemen. This is a white flag. This is Joe Biden saying, no, I'm not going to do every single thing I possibly can through executive order. That's what this is. Because we already told you there's a David Dayan article, great David Dayan article, about how he actually has the authority, if he wanted, to give everybody health care through Medicare, through executive order. There's a good legal argument for that, using a provision of the Affordable Care Act. And he's not going to do that. He brings up the example of, you know, banning assault weapons. He says he's not going to do that. But I think what this gets to is there will be things where he actually does have the authority where he won't do it. And his excuse will be, oh, there are constitutional limits on me, so I can't do that. But again, you can find a legal expert who gives you a very solid argument that you can have a more powerful executive branch. FDR used executive power all the time. And that's how we got a lot of the things that he did done, especially in a situation where you know Congress is going to be incredibly obstructionist. I mean, you have to do that. If you want to get anything done, you have to do that. So this is a white flag. It really is a white flag from Joe here. And 
the thing that should pop in your mind as we talk about this is this famous quote to wealthy donors, nothing will fundamentally change. Yeah, that's what he's saying, nothing will fundamentally change. He wants to rely more on Congress, but he knows it's going to be hard to get stuff through Congress. So to, to the extent they get anything done, it's going to have to be Republican approved. And Republican approved would be like a grand bargain to cut Social Security and Medicare. as They pretend like they're not cutting it and they're just reforming it. I fear Biden will do something like that. Um, and now I know that he's not going to do everything he possibly can through executive order. I mean, the right thing to do, given the scale and the scope of our problems, do as much as you possibly can through executive order and make them take you to court. Make the Republicans take you to court. And whatever the decisions are, they are. But you're on record as I'm the person who's trying to get everybody health care during a pandemic, for example. Um, but he's not going to do that. And it's so sad because it, it's like it's the reminder, the stark reminder that he is who we thought he was all along. He is who we thought he was. We thought he was a moderate Republican. We thought that, you know, he wasn't going to be an FDR-type president. And there were articles, the media flat out lying to us, oh, he'll be the most progressive president since FDR. He's making a right-wing argument about, I can't do all these things through executive order because of the Constitution. It prevents me from, from doing it. The Constitution can be interpreted a thousand different ways. And if you care more about actually fixing the country, doing the best for the American people, then you act and you find a convincing legal rationale and you argue for it relentlessly. He's admitting, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to err on the side of caution, do less through executive order, just claim constitutional limits, and sit back and try to get everything through Congress that I can, knowing I'm going to fail most of the time. This is going to be a terribly ineffectual president, presidency. And I have to say, I think this, we're likely to see the rise of a new kind of Trump, and a more effective kind of Trump, because there will be a backlash to terrible governance that's basically non-existent at a time where we need good governance. We need something to fight back against this economic depression, what will become a housing crisis, a pandemic. You need a strong, centralized, powerful government to address these problems. And he's basically admitting here, when it comes to executive power, I will not flex as much as I probably can and we're really screwed, man. I hate to say it, but it's true. Okay. Oops. Wrong slide, bitch. All right, let's see what Biden said to civil rights leaders. Joe Biden had a meeting with civil rights leaders. And um, so we covered the portion on executive orders. What he said about executive orders was not good. There's also a part where he flipped out when civil rights leaders were prodding him to do more on race issues. Watch this. 
progress they thought they would have seen at this point. Let's not disappoint them, and let's not get to a place where voters in Georgia begin to second guess. Okay, let me respond. I've got to go. Let me respond. There's a lot to respond to here. Let's get something straight. You shouldn't be disappointed. What I've done so far is more than anybody else has done this far. Okay? Number one. Number two, I mean what I say when I say it. I mean what I say when I say it. I'm the only person who's ever run on three platforms that I was told could not possibly win the election, and I never ceased from it. One was on restoring the soul of this country because of what I saw happen in Charlottesville. That was it. No one else was talking about it. The words of presidents matter. Nobody else, no progressive, was talking about it. I did. My son, Bo, used to have an expression. He said, remember, Dad. Remember, Dad. Home base. It ain't worth the job if I can't say what I believe. I didn't want to run this time. I ran this time because of the racist son of a gun who was president of the United States of America. That's why I ran. And you'll remember, a lot of you told me, talking about the soul of America, was going over people's heads. They didn't know what we were talking about. The words of a president matter. What a president says matters. And you've never seen me shy away. In the middle of the debate, I called him a racist. In the middle of the debate with him, I took on white supremacists. I'm the guy that took on every single time somebody was threatened in this country. The only white boy you know who did it, period, out there, every single time. So, look, all I'm saying here is, guys and ladies, we're on the same exact page, the same exact page. There's so much to say about this. There's one point where he goes on to say, and he was angry as he was saying it, he was like, you do know that the Hispanic population is growing a lot, and there are more of them than there are of you all, and so you're going to have to learn to work with them. And that really is an insight into how he sees these issues. The way Joe Biden sees these issues now is the classic, you know, stereotyped neoliberal way of viewing these issues, which is like, hey, what more do you want? I'm putting you guys in my administration and I'm calling Trump racist. So I, I'm the perfect president on these issues. As if like the end-all be-all to black voters, working class people of color is like, hey, let's make sure we have people of color in the administration who then turn around and continue the status quo. No, because the status quo isn't good enough. So he got mad. He said, you shouldn't be disappointed. I've done more than anybody. I like when he said, I'm the only white boy who's done this. He says, you shouldn't be disappointed. I've done more than anybody. Then he goes on to explain, I ran on restoring the soul of the country. I ran on Charlottesville. Um, and here's his main thesis. Quote, the words of the president matters. See, Joe Biden genuinely believes that probably the biggest part of his job is virtue signaler in chief. So if he goes out there and he's like, racism is bad, racism is a scourge, Trump is a racist, you know, and diversity is awesome. If he goes out there and says those things, 
he views that as equal to actual progressive governance that materially improves lives of people of color and all working Americans. He thinks that that's like part and parcel of his job is to just be the national cheerleader and soothsayer and the person who's like, hey, 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 racism is still bad, okay? And the words of the president matters. And it's just like, no, that's not really the important part of your job. The important part of your job is legislation, is fighting to implement a policy agenda. That's the thing about your job that really, 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 really matters. But he thinks like just saying the right things substitutes for a policy agenda that improves lives. And then also, remember his record, guys. This is a guy who gave a eulogy at a famous segregationist funeral. I think it was Strom Thurmond. He worked with segregationists on busing. You know, like, he's not even what he's currently portraying himself as being. There was a time when his record was abysmal on these issues. But it really is telling, isn't it, that his, his view is like, I'm putting you guys in the administration, you guys meaning powerful neoliberal black people, I'm putting you guys in the administration, like, what more do you want? I'm putting you in the administration, and I'm calling Trump racist, and I'm saying racism is bad. Mission accomplished, right? No, actually. Not even close to mission accomplished. How about raising wages for people of color and for all Americans? How about doing that? You don't want to do that? How about getting health care for black Americans? How about that? How about that? How about ending the racist drug war that you helped facilitate? You wrote the crime bill. You locked up more brown and black people than arguably anybody in American politics today. But again, he thinks if I just say the right things, that substitutes for action. I'm saying Trump is racist and Trump is bad and racism is bad. And so, and I'm putting you in my administration. So shh, how could you be mad at me? It says a lot about Joe Biden. And remember, he already admitted in this same call, I'm not going to flex executive authority as much as you want me to. That means not, no executive orders on things that he views as borderline in terms of the constitutionality of it. God, it's so ugly. I hate this, man. I hate this. Credit to Ryan Grimm for getting this uh, video, the call with civil rights leaders. And um, yet again, Joe Biden is exactly who we thought he was. I am going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, Nina Turner, baby. We will be discussing Nina Turner. Get excited for that.
comeback, bitch. I am back. I am back. Let's keep it going. The story that'll make all you lovely people incredibly happy. For good reason. Nothing, nothing should brighten your mood more than this. Here we go. Nina Turner has filed with the FEC to run for Marsha Fudge's congressional seat in Ohio. So Marsha Fudge has been picked for a position in the Biden administration, and uh, that's why it's now open for Nina. Now, I think there are a number of people who are ultimately going to run for this seat. And that is fantastic news for Nina, because if you have a fractured field, I think that that almost always helps the firebrand progressive. And because she could, she could pretty easily, dare I say, get a coalition of like, just get like a solid 30, 35% block of the vote and in a fractured field that could be enough um and also it's good you know there there will probably be more corporate democrats than left democrats and again that further splits their vote and consolidates her support and my god how much we'd all love to see this so this is one of those rare times ladies and gentlemen where You know, you get somebody who comes along who really is the real deal, and there's no question about it. And in a situation like that, yeah, we should all not just support her, but actually even, like, donate to her. I don't really, I don't recommend this often, but for somebody like Nina, for sure I'll be donating to her. I don't know, I don't think we have the links yet, and I don't even know if she's officially said it herself yet, but we know she's running because she filed with the FEC to run for the seat. So we'll see if slash when. It's not if. It's when she makes her official announcement. Um, but this is wonderful news. Now, but there's another angle to this as well, which other people aren't talking about that much. But I, I think it's the most important part of the conversation with a lot of the other Justice Democrats. Okay? And I say this from a place of love. Sometimes criticism comes from a place of love. Sometimes it doesn't, but this is an instance where it does. Um, It's one thing to be correct on the policy issues. That's one thing. It's a totally different thing to be a leader. Nina Turner is a leader. She's not just right on the policy issues. She's a leader. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, she's unafraid to take note of who her enemies are. So, you know, while other good left congresspeople might go along to get along with somebody like Nancy Pelosi and try to to play the game where if if you give them what they want, maybe they'll give you what you want, tit for tat sort of situation. 
And it's tough. When you're in D.C., it's tough. You feel the weight of the institutions. You feel the weight of human nature, which wants, you know, you want to be kind to anybody you meet. Like, this is how it works, right? Like, we're humans. It's tough when you see somebody face-to-face, you shake their hand, and, like, what are you going to do? Are you going to make an enemy out of that person, like, immediately? Other Justice Democrats have seen the system, have become part of the system, have been absorbed by the system, and to some extent, in terms of strategy, have been watered down by the system. Again, not in terms of policy, because on the actual issues, they're all good. But in terms of strategy, yeah, they've taken the exact wrong approach. And I don't think we have to worry about Nina Turner taking the wrong approach. I think she knows damn well that Nancy Pelosi is an enemy. I think she knows damn well that the corporate Democrats are an enemy. I think she knows that the media is an enemy. Because the media, it, it, it's made it part of their being and their identity to smear Bernie Sanders. Standard operating procedure. She saw it firsthand working on Bernie's campaign. She knows. She knows. So if we have somebody who's on the left who doesn't care that the media smears them and fights back, doesn't care about falling in line to appease corporate Democrats, but rather takes on corporate Democrats, what you do is you now have a role of a leader. So when she shows backbone, when she bucks trends, when she stands up and says, I'm going to do the right thing, that then gives cover for the other justice Democrats and some people in the Congressional Progressive Caucus to say, yeah, I'm with her. Because then, it, then she's the one who takes all the, the incoming fire. And the other ones are like, I, hey, I'm just saying I agree with her. So somebody has to lead that charge. Somebody has to be the voice to be that light in the darkness, to be the one navigating She has that ability. She has it. I don't think the others have it. And again, it's not their fault. It really isn't. Because it's tough. You get to D.C. and you feel the weight of the institutions. Human nature kicks in. You want to sort of get along with everybody. And it's hard to really stand on principle and really lean into fights. But I think Nina Turner can do it. And if there's anything that's missing, I mean, obviously the main thing that's missing is we need a president. We need a left president. But outside of that, the only thing that's missing is real leadership. Because we have enough in terms of our actual votes to really make a difference. You know, we have like 15 people who are always going to vote the right way. So now you just need a leader who's like, no, no, no. We are going to vote as a block. We are going to make them bend to our demands. That is what we're going to do. Whereas now there's no, there's no cohesion and there's no consistency. And there's no organization and strategy. Nina Turner brings that. So you should be incredibly excited. I know I am incredibly excited. And, um, man, Nina Turner, Congresswoman Nina Turner, oh, it'd be the best thing ever. All right, next. Stimulus check time, stimulus check time. Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Josh Hawley have teamed up in a push for $1,200 stimulus checks. 
CNBC says that Bernie Sanders and Josh Hawley are among the most vocal supporters of $1,200 stimulus checks. Now the two lawmakers are reaching across the aisle to make sure those payments are included in any congressional legislation. This amendment would make certain that working families get the urgent direct support they need to survive, Sanders said. So um, they're really, they're not just talking the talk, they're walking the walk here because I think that they're even willing to force everybody to stay in D.C. through the holidays if, uh, if they don't get the stimulus checks. And it's about damn time. This is good. This is positive. Now, I want to take a moment here to really reflect on what's happening and to explain to everybody that if you disagree with this strategically, I think you're a rube. (laughs) I'm trying to be nice, but I can't be. Because there is, there's always a lot of controversy whenever any Democratic politician works with some Republican politician. There's always controversy about just the whole endeavor in the first place. Like, it is a very popular opinion these days to say, because Josh Hawley's terrible on other issues, to work with him on this issue lends him credibility on the other issues, and so you shouldn't do this because it's not, it's not good for the left in the long run. And listen, this is, this is the thing that's been smeared a lot online in the past two years, this populist left, populist right alliance. Now, I get it. On most issues, Josh Hawley is not a real populist. He's a fake populist. There are right-to-work laws that he supported. Those are anti-union laws. That's not populist. That's not populist at all. He supported some outsourcing deals, not remotely populist. So, yeah, he's a fake populist in most ways. But he's now supporting legislation for $1,200 stimulus checks, and that's what Bernie Sanders also supports on this issue. You have to give him credit. You have to give credit where credit is due. He's correct on the issue. And furthermore, this part, I'm not as inclined. Like, I don't really care as much about this part, but other people should because most people have this personality trait where it's very difficult for them. But this is Josh Hawley standing up on the Republican side when all of his colleagues don't agree with him. He's making all of his Republican colleagues look look bad in comparison. And they're going to hate him for this. They're going to be like, Why are you making us look bad, and why are you doing this thing? Which, in theory, is a left-wing idea. Giving people money? Yeah, that's a left idea. So he's making enemies among people who are friends by doing this. You have to give somebody credit when they buck their social circle as much as he's bucking his social circle right now. So, yes, even though he's overall he's a fake populist, on this issue he's correct. And Bernie Sanders is not some sort of fascist apologist or whatever nonsense goofy term people come up with for working with him on it. Here's the main point, guys. If the corporate right and the corporate left are going to work together to not give you stimulus checks, then the populist left and the pseudo-populist right should work together to give you stimulus checks. And the same goes on every single issue. So foreign policy, for example, you should have the populist left and the libertarian right work together on foreign policy. Because the libertarian right agrees, let's stop the wars. You know, when it comes to free trade, the paleoconservatives should work with the populist left. Because we all agree, free trade is outsourcing American jobs and it's a race to the bottom. Okay. You build bridges wherever you can build bridges. This is how you coalition build. And by the way, just so everybody understands, it works this way on every issue. So in other words, I'm the biggest opponent of Nancy Pelosi that there is. But Nancy Pelosi and I agree on 
gay marriage, for example, would I work with Nancy Pelosi on uh, a bill, for example, to do LGBTQ non-discrimination protections? Of course. She's right on that issue. That's what I believe on the issue. I know she's corrupt and terrible, but on that issue, I will work with her because she's correct on that issue. Again, this isn't rocket science. You build coalitions wherever you can build coalitions on the issues. And so now we're seeing what we need is a more long-term alliance, and this is how you win. This is how you win. You're, you are seeing it more on war. It's like Ro Khanna will work together with like Matt Gates on getting out of Afghanistan. Wonderful. I don't agree with Matt Gates on almost anything. What I do agree with him on is let's get out of Afghanistan. So you've got to work together. You've got to do it. And so anyway, my point is you cannot make terrible arguments about legitimizing a fascist or racist or whatever when the issue in question is fucking stimulus checks during an economic depression and a pandemic. Because on the issue of stimulus checks, yes, they're both correct. Work with them. It's like when Bernie Sanders worked with Mike Lee, who we disagree with on almost everything, but we agreed with him, let's stop aiding and abetting the genocide in Yemen. Let's stop arming Saudi Arabia. He agreed. Good. (laughs) And I don't even care if he came to that position because he says, I'm a bigot and I hate Muslims and I don't want to arm Muslims. Okay, that's a messed up thing to say, but at the same time, if the end goal is you saying, let's not arm Saudi Arabia, I'll take it because they shouldn't be armed. So anyway, guys, take yes for a goddamn answer. Take yes for an answer. Bernie Sanders is correct. Josh Hawley is correct on this. Not on other things, on this. And so take yes for an answer and move forward. And I feel like this, this is so important, this conversation, even though it seems like common sense to a lot of people. It's so important because, no, it's actually not common sense. A lot of people disagree with us, disagree with me on this. And if you, for example, have any, if you're young and you're watching this and you want to get involved in politics, the last thing I would want is for somebody to be bullheaded and stupid and to, like, not work with anybody on the right simply because, that would mean I'm legitimizing a fascist or a bigot or whatever. No, if the issue is something like stimulus checks, of course you work with them. And so I want people to understand that coalition building is one of the most important parts of politics. And as long as you're agreeing on your terms, of course you work with them. You absolutely work with them. So they better get this. They better get this through. And by the way, it does say a lot, doesn't it? Josh Hawley is the only one on the Republican side who's like, yeah, stimulus checks says a lot, doesn't it? That really, really says a lot. So don't give me this bullshit about like, oh, because I've seen this a lot lately. Lately, Realignment happening. The Republicans are becoming the party of workers. It's only Josh Hawley who's, who's for the stimulus checks. That's it. And like I said, he's against, he's for right-to-work laws, which are anti-union laws, and he's been for some outsourcing deals. Like, they're still as corrupt as it gets writ large. Like, the party's a mess. Not saying the Democrats are good, but yeah, they're going to be more Democrats who are for the stimulus checks than Republicans. I mean, Democrats passed Heroes Act, and Heroes Act's been sitting there, and McConnell's like, you know, he's not even blinking. And they keep they keep watering down the bill too. By the way, it was like 908 billion dollars, and they, I think Romney and Manchin did a new one, and it's like 188 billion dollars. They're re- they're really proposing a stimulus bill without stimulus checks. That's happening a lot now. I mean, that's like literally the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. The main purpose of the bill should be to give checks to people. And this is another thing I've been screaming at Nancy Pelosi to do. 
just pass a standalone bill, $1,200 checks per month for the duration of the crisis. Just that bill could be one page, pass it through the House, and then you clobber the Republicans in the Senate with that and say, we passed this. The HEROES Act, there's too much in it. Just do that one stimulus check bill. But it seems like Bernie Sanders and Josh Hawley have come together, and they're the ones who are fighting on this front. I hope they win. They better win because people desperately, desperately, desperately need this help. And it is a good thing working with somebody who you otherwise disagree with on something where it's your terms and it's the correct policy. So move forward, and I hope they win. Okay, let's talk about Bernie Sanders getting smeared yet again. MSNBC host Stephanie Rule interviewed Bernie the other day and managed to piss off every single online lefty with a question that she asked. Senator Bernie Sanders from the state of Vermont is leading a group of progressive Democratic senators demanding $1,200 stimulus checks be included in the next release. Um, Senator, we've heard your impassioned argument. Help us understand how many other senators have you convinced to support these stimulus checks? Any Republicans on board? Yes, I think there is one, but uh, Senator uh, Holly uh, indicates that he is support of of a $1,200 uh, per person uh, direct uh, payment and $600 or $500 for children. Uh, I think the Democratic caucus is ready to go forward on that. Yesterday I sent out a letter uh, with five other senators, and I think we can have virtually all of the United States uh, Democratic senators on board. The question now is whether or not Mitch McConnell is going to turn his back as your report just indicated, on the incredible suffering that the American people, the working people, are now experiencing, unemployment high, we have a record level of hunger in America, millions of people are facing evictions. This is an emergency. Congress has got to respond aggressively to help working families. You know, Stephanie, I always get a kick. Here in Washington, when we go to war, there's endless amounts of money. Tax breaks for billionaires, endless amounts of money corporate welfare, endless amounts of money. When children are going hungry in America today, suddenly we don't have enough money. That's crap. That's wrong. And if we have got to stay here throughout Christmas, which is the last thing in the world that I would want to do, we are going to stay here because we are going to make sure that struggling working families in this country get the help they desperately need. Senator, I'm not agreeing with you fundamentally, but I want to talk to you practically. You've been the lead sponsor of 422 bills during your 30 years in Congress, but only seven of them have become law. Given that record and how dire things are, as you just laid out, do you need to find another lane or take a different approach here? I yearn for the sweet embrace of death. Nancy Pelosi 
has been in D.C. longer than Bernie. She has the exact same number of bills. Would they ever ask that question to Nancy Pelosi? Ever. Not in a million years. Not in a million years. Blaming Bernie Sanders because Washington, D.C. is a corrupt swamp, and he happens to not be corrupt. Blaming him because his colleagues are trash. By the way, it's also incredibly misleading because Bernie Sanders got the nickname the Amendment King. Why? He was able to get provisions that he wanted into many bills. Again, not the lead sponsor of it, right? That's what she brought up. Oh, the lead sponsor, only seven of them became law. Yeah, but what about the amendments where he put overwhelmingly positive things into other pieces of legislation? You don't give many any credit for that, do you? You don't give many any credit for working with Mike Lee, for example, a Republican across the aisle, to end the genocide in Yemen, to stop arming Saudi Arabia. That passed. It was Donald Trump who vetoed it. Is that Bernie's fault? Of course it's not Bernie's fault. It's Donald Trump's fault. By the way, there's also this misnomer that, like, you can't be a principled leftist and compromise and work across the aisle. Actually, the exact opposite is true. If you're a principled leftist, you'll find plenty of areas, areas of compromise with the right. You could work with the libertarian right to end war. You could work with the populist right to do stimulus checks, like Bernie's doing here with Josh Hawley. So there's actually the opportunity for more bipartisanship and more coalition building if you're on the left and you actually have an ideology. But the, the belief of stupid people who don't know this stuff or care about this stuff, they just assume you have to be a corporatist in order to get anything done that's bipartisan. And they fetishize bipartisanship when it's on the corporatist terms, but when it's on the left terms, they smear it or they act like it doesn't exist. And so, I mean, think about that, guys. The whole job of the media is to be a watchdog of the powerful. Is that what Stephanie Rule is doing here? The questions that she should be asking are questions of the other people who are not in favor of the stimulus checks, and she should be grilling them and saying, are you insane? Have you seen the numbers? 40% of the country is food insecure. 28 million people are on the brink of homelessness. Meanwhile, billionaires got a trillion dollars wealthier since the beginning of COVID. And you're not even for a $1,200 stimulus check? Do you understand that other developed countries are paying anywhere from 70% to 100% of people's wages as they lock down? And we had a one-time $1,200 check? Are you insane not being for this? She should be prodding the people who are not for the stimulus checks and holding power accountable. Instead, she tries to play gotcha with one of the only people who's trying to hold the powerful accountable and trying to do the right thing by the American people. They don't grill the powerful. They grill the people who grill the powerful. It's that old Malcolm X quote. If you're not careful, the media will have you loving your oppressor and hating the oppressed. I mean, that's exactly what we're seeing here. She also, by the way, used the, like, the unpopularity of this bill with the rest of D.C. She used that as an argument of its silliness on the face of it and how it's not pragmatic. She's like, if it's just, if it's you and Hawley, and this wasn't in the bill that they already negotiated, I mean, 
maybe you're wrong and maybe you should try a different approach or something. So in other words, hey, the swamp is really swampy and you're not sufficiently swampy, so maybe the problem's with you. No, Stephanie, not at all. There's a reason why Congress regularly has an approval rating around 20%, because people know it's the swamp. People know they're corrupt. And then you have every now and then, you get somebody who comes along who wants to do something for the people, and that's what you decide to be aggressive about? I mean, honestly, it is fucking sickening. It really is. It's sickening. She's trying to make the point, like, obviously you're ineffectual. Obviously you're bad at this. I mean, look at the numbers here. Blaming Bernie Sanders because the rest of his colleagues are corrupt and don't care about people. And ignoring the Amendment King aspect of his career. It really doesn't get any worse than her. Because she's, she's framing her defense of the status quo as if it's like edgy and holding the powerful accountable. That's not what you're doing. You're defending the powerful, whether or not you realize it. You're defending the status quo, whether or not you realize it. Taking the only guy who's actually fighting for people in this instance and trying to use his record against him and play got ya. By the way, what exactly do you want him to do? What, should, what exactly should he do? He, he wor- reached across the aisle, is working with Josh Hawley, trying to get people stimulus checks, is fighting for it right now, and you're saying... Why don't you take a different approach? What's the different approach? What would you rather him do? And I think the answer is just don't push for the stimulus checks. If I had to guess, that's what it is, right? She would probably say just take the mansion, um, the mansion Romney deal or the mansion McConnell deal. Take it. Even though it's a stimulus bill without stimulus checks during effectively an economic depression. She doesn't, she doesn't care about you. She doesn't understand the pain that's happening in this country right now. She's comfortable in her little elitist bubble, and so she's toughest on one of the only non-elitist politicians. It says a lot about Stephanie Rule. Okay. Now we're going to go to CNBC doing a fawning segment. On billionaires. CNBC did a positive fawning segment on the increase in billionaire net worth under COVID. Watch this. Year for IPOs is turning into a banner year for newly minted American billionaires. Robert Frank joins us now with more. Um, I'm celebrating, Robert. I'm not one of them, but I'm just on the record. I'm not Bernie Sanders. I'm, I'm celebrating. I'm celebrating that there's taxes, there's philanthropy, there's the possibility it can happen to other people if you work hard and have a great idea. I like millionaires and I like billionaires. But uh, you go ahead. I'm not going to comment on this. I have, I have no editorial opinion. <laughs> yeah, these stories are just really inspirational, no matter what your point of view. You've got this week two IPOs, six billionaires, over $40 billion in personal wealth. You look at DoorDash, they minted three new multi-billionaires this week. CEO Tony Hsu, he's now worth 
over $2.7 billion. You've got co-founders Andy Fang and Stanley Tang. They were all friends at Stanford, and they did the first coding and food delivering while working at night while they were students at school. Those two guys worth $2.5 billion. Now, the winner of the week was Brian Chesky. He, of course, Airbnb CEO. He's one of three co-founders who started the company when they were flat broke, sitting in a San Francisco apartment, they decided to rent out air mattresses to make the rent. Chesky, now worth over $11 billion. He also got a share grant this fall, valued at $1.8 billion, so that's on top of that. And he and the other guys cashed out about $90 million in stock yesterday. Now, co-founders Joe Gebbia and Nathan Blacharczyk, they are now worth over $10 billion, also cashing out some of those shares. Now, in total... American billionaires have gained a trillion dollars in wealth just this year. Joe? This is just a perfect CNBC clip. It's everything that's terrible about CNBC in one clip. So the main problem here is they clearly believe in the myth of meritocracy. That's how they're talking. They're talking like, who, me? I'm not like Bernie Sanders. I don't want to punish success. I want to reward success. I think this is wonderful that we have more millionaires and more billionaires now. The idea that the reason why these people are getting wealthy is because they just worked harder than everybody else. Provably not true. That's clearly not the case. I've said this before, but some of the hardest working people I've ever known were working like two or three low-wage jobs. All of their waking moments were spent working, and they still never made enough money to have a decent, comfortable life. So the idea of the harder you work, the further you go, that's not accurate. And, like, I would be sympathetic to people if they defend the hierarchy of a meritocracy, if it's an actual meritocracy. But we don't have a meritocracy, so stop pretending like we do. And then the other thing is they sincerely believe, oh, you know, somebody's wealth doesn't make anybody else poor. But that's not really true either. The idea that like, oh, just because this person's got like $10 billion doesn't mean that this person who's living on less than minimum wage is impacted by this person having $10 billion. And it's like, of course. There's a finite amount of money and wealth, and this is, we need redistributive policies to ameliorate the extreme inequality brought about as a result of either a laissez-faire capitalist system or, in our case, a corporatist system. So, yeah, of course, of course, the redistributive policies are absolutely necessary because the, the, inequality, the wealth inequality and income inequality can get so extreme that of course you look at it and you go, well, we should tax that guy and redistribute it and help these people and do it in the form of education, do it in the form of health care, in infrastructure, uh, you know, paid vacation time. Like, of course, redistribution is necessary and important and can help ameliorate the, you know, extreme inequality. So the idea of, like, that person's $10 billion has no reflection on the fact that this person's a working poor person I mean, honestly, it's stupid if, if you believe that. I think the people who believe that are, like, disregarding all evidence. Now, just to give you, you know, a better sense here, 
as to the place we're currently in, an estimated 41.4% of the total U.S. population, 135 million people, are either poor or low income. CEO compensation has grown 940% since 1978, and your typical worker, their pay has only risen 12% during that time. There's a, a disconnect between productivity and wages. People have been incredibly productive for decades, and their wages have barely budged. Three men, three billionaires, own as much as the bottom half of Americans. The richest 5% of Americans own 66% of the nation's wealth. There was that Oxfam report from a few years back, 85 people, the richest 85 people own more wealth than the bottom half of the world combined. 85 people with more than 3.5 billion people. I mean, and then the new numbers as a result of COVID, 26 million Americans are going hungry. That's three to four times more than the pre-pandemic number. And 40% of Americans are now food insecure, which is why you see these incredibly long lines at food banks. Incredibly long lines. So you look at a situation like that, and then they casually are like, billionaires have added a trillion dollars to their net worth since for this year, since the beginning of COVID. And it's like, you don't see the issue there. You don't see that 40% of people being food insecure is not okay as billionaires have a trillion dollars more wealth. You don't see the problem there. You don't think anything could be done to address that. It's like they, this is basic governance would fix that. Redistributive policies, higher marginal tax rates, a wealth tax, you know, doing things like taking the necessities off the table like most other developed countries do, like healthcare and education, having like a UBI, more stimulus checks. This stuff is all so important, but they act like it's awesome that billionaires are a trillion dollars wealthier, and they're just ignoring the fact that now 40% of the country is food insecure. You're having an extreme consolidation of wealth among the hands of a few people right now, just so everybody understands. This is part of what's happened with COVID and with the CARES Act. It was a giant redistribution of wealth to the richest people in the country, to corporations, to billionaires. $5 trillion worth of a bailout, corporate welfare, corporate socialism, and people just got crumbs. I mean, it's just everything about this clip is infuriating. We don't live in a meritocracy. So you bring up these rags to riches story, that's not like the way the system works. Those people are lucky. If they're honest, they'll tell you they're lucky. And just so you know, up to 45% of wealth is inherited rather than self-made. Think about that. So we're talking about basically half of wealthy people. They didn't get it through like hard work or working their way up, even in theory. It was just like, daddy was rich and daddy died and you got what daddy had. This is another reason, by the way, why, you know, um, the death tax, also known as the inheritance tax, is super important. It only, it only applies to like 0.1% of the country or something like that. People that have like estates, the estate tax, like, yes, of course you should tax that. Who better to tax than rich dead people? You just want to hand it all off to the next generation? If somebody's worth $5 billion, kid doesn't have to do anything, say anything, be productive in any way, shape, or form, and just hand them $5 billion? Really? That's a, in a country where 40% of the people are food insecure? That's what you want to do? I mean, that makes no sense. It's just a stupid system. It's a stupid system. So don't fall for the idea that we live in a meritocracy. These people all think we do. And they're slamming Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders 
wants to take the rough edges off of the insane system, wants to bring about social democracy where at least you give people an equal chance of making it. But that's CNBC for you. That's CNBC. CNBC are the people who are going to be so happy that there's more billionaires, more millionaires, trillion dollars worth of wealth was added to the to billionaires, and they're celebrating that as they ignore the economic degradation and extreme poverty in this country right now. And even if they were to acknowledge it and mention it, they wouldn't say that there's any connection whatsoever to how the wealthy are doing, which is either dishonest or really stupid. Okay. All right, let's talk about John Ossoff, 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 however the fuck you say his name. John Ossoff, I don't even know how to say his name, Ossoff, Ossoff, John Ossoff, Ossoff, (laughs) whatever. John Ossoff is out with a new political ad in his race against David Perdue for the Senate. Let's watch. I'm John Ossoff, and I approve this message. When this pandemic hit, millions of Georgians like me had to file for unemployment. We needed our senator's help. But for David Perdue, we weren't the priority. Senator Perdue voted to give hundreds of billions to big corporations, even if they lay people off. But he fought against the $1,200 stimulus check for workers and supported cutting our unemployment benefits. Even at a moment like this, David Perdue is there for his donors, but not for us. That's a good ad. I have many criticisms of John Ossoff. I mean, he there's that clip that went viral, which we covered, where he's asked, like, This is a guy who's so political that he never gives a straight answer. The only time I've ever seen him give a straight answer is when he was asked, do you support the Green New Deal? He says, no. Do you support Medicare for All? He says, no. So I have a lot of criticisms of this guy. I think he's uh, the exact kind of Democrat that would usually struggle to win because he stands for nothing and he's a platitude machine. However, Purdue is one of the most corrupt people in Washington, D.C., and that says a lot. Super duper duper corrupt. And, and... This kind of ad that you just saw is uh, the kind of ad that wins. Because what's he doing? Focusing on the economy. Making the issues understandable, digestible, kitchen table issues. Hey, they're bailing out corporations, they're not bailing out you. He wasn't in favor of the stimulus check to help you. He was in favor of cutting unemployment. He's in favor of not doing the stimulus checks. That's a message that can work. In fact, let me show you this next thing here because this, is, this kind of makes the case for me. Uh, Ryan Cooper says, famous Democratic pollster Stan Greenberg says, garbage Dem messaging on economics and corruption is responsible for disappointing minority turnout. Uh, So this is a guy who literally is Bill Clinton's former pollster. So a corporatist who still is understanding that the strategy to win is to talk economics. Let me read this to you. But my research showed black voters responded much more strongly to messages 
that promised broad political and economic change, changes as well as racial justice. As I observed, every message test I conducted during the 2016 and 2018 campaigns found, that, found the same kind of sophistication and clarity in the new America of African Americans and Hispanic, Hispanic single women, millennials, and college women. It got more engaged and more determined to vote for Democrats when they called out the corrupt political deals that put government to work for big corporations and big donors, rather than calling out the barriers to inclusion, promising ladders of opportunity. Okay, so, in other words, um, empty, woke pandering is a lot less profound and doesn't work nearly as well as talking about how corrupt our political system is, the fact that we should end the corruption, and talking about wages and economics. And so John Ossoff with this ad is showing like, okay, I'm kind of, I'm getting what I have to say in order to win. I'm, I'm understanding the kind of message that would appeal. Now, I would go a step further. I would literally only focus on this. That's what I would do. You make the election a referendum on the stimulus checks. You make the election a referendum on raising the minimum wage. That's what you do. If you elect me, we get a higher minimum wage because Democrats, if we both win in Georgia, me and Warnock, then Democrats control the Senate. The House already passed the minimum wage increase. The Senate will pass minimum wage increase and Joe Biden will sign it. If you vote for me, you're getting a raise. If you vote for me, you're getting stimulus checks. If you don't, you're not. I'm going to help you during the pandemic. My opponents are going to hurt you during the pandemic. I would only make that case and I'd make it over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and then I'd win. Now, he is making the case, but is that his only focus? I don't know about that. So, um, but I like what I see. If he keeps going down this road, yeah, he'll, he could win. He could win. But he has to use this strategy because Democrats, you know, in the era of Trump, what they did is platitude, cliche, Trump bad. That was the whole message. Platitude, cliche, Trump bad, vote for me. And that was only inspiring enough to beat Donald Trump. And the reason Trump lost is because there's an, basically an economic depression and a pandemic. So, but down ballot, Dems sort of got draxed. Like they were supposed to do way better than they did. And they didn't. So now you learn your lesson. Even Bill Clinton's pollster is like, it's the economy, stupid. So even the corporatists, are like, hmm, we have to at least pretend to want to materially improve the lives of our voters, and then they'll vote for us. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's how it works. So anyway, more ads like this, and Ossoff can definitely win. If he strays from this message, he won't. All right, now we're going to talk about the Manhattan DA. The Manhattan DA, um, blah, 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 blah. let me actually cue up the article. Okay, here we go, one more time. So Donald Trump might be in some hot water. Um, I kept telling you guys, if he's going to go down when he's out of office, he will very likely go down because of the cases in New York against him. And now we're learning Manhattan DA interviews Deutsche Bank employees in Trump investigation. So 
there's a number of employees who they're talking to, and they were prodding as to how they make their loans, how do they decide, what's the process, and they're getting into the specifics of Trump's business dealings and his personal dealings as well. And um, listen, I think there's a lot of dirt there because his whole life he's been a corrupt businessman. And so as soon as you look beneath the surface, you can get them on a lot of stuff. They go on to say in the article that the district attorney's office has indicated in court filings that it is investigating potentially extensive criminal conduct at the Trump organization. Prosecutors have suggested that Trump and his businesses could be investigated for tax and insurance fraud. Tax and insurance fraud. Now remember, if he goes down because of this, He can't even, like, if it's a federal crime, he could try to pardon himself, which would be crazy, and he should lose that court case because you shouldn't be able to pardon yourself. That's insane. You're just making yourself a dictator, basically. But if, if it's state, if it's the state coming after him, he doesn't even have, it's not even in the realm of possibility that he could pardon himself because you can only pardon for federal crimes, not state crimes. So he'd go down and there's no way out. But obviously, listen, they, that being said, if he would be out of office anyway when, when, the hammer drops on this. So, but even like a President Pence couldn't pardon him if it's state crimes and it would be state crimes. So he might actually be getting nervous. He might be getting nervous because there really is, there's, you can't hide it as well if they're going through the business records and the bully pulpit's not going to help you. You know what I mean? Like most of Trump's problems, he's just used the bully pulpit as president effectively to get his way out of whatever problems it is. But this is like, no, that's not going to that's not going to do it. If they find enough, you're going down. And remember, we discussed, you know, his taxes recently. And there was a lot of questionable stuff in there. Now, some of the stuff he'll get away with, like the crazy violation of the emoluments clause, for example. Um, I mean, taken, what, over $70 million from foreign investors since he's been president? I mean, if that's connected to Saudi Arabia or Israel, then he turns around and does favors for them. That's a clear violation of the Emoluments Clause, and that's almost certainly what happened. Jared and Ivanka, $135 million they've made as they've been in the White House. Who's it coming from? Who are you doing favors for? This could all be investigated, and it's all incredibly corrupt and probably illegal. That's the stuff they'll probably get away with, What he won't get away with is this more banal stuff, kind of like standard operating procedure business crimes, if you will. Um, In his taxes, we learned that he he was basically giving Ivanka a lot of money and writing it off, taking it as a tax write-off. It's not really a legitimate write-off now, is it? Tax fraud, you know, overvaluing his assets in certain contexts and undervaluing it in other contexts. Again, you're lying. You're lying about your taxes. So a lot of this stuff is illegal. And the question is, what can you actually nail him on? What can you prove? Because if this fails, let me explain to you why it would fail. It would fail because oftentimes the way the law is written is to give wealthy people enough wiggle room, get out of situations like this. There are enough legal loopholes where if you have some business expert whose job it is to find those loopholes, 
they end up doing stuff that seems clearly illegal and unethical, but really it's just unethical. It's legal because the loophole was there for a reason. So that's the only, that's the only thing that might be his saving grace, is that the law is so rigged anyway that oftentimes a lot of these actions are legal, even though they look clearly illegal. So, but then again, he also just owes so much money to so many people. Now, in terms of like the private businesses he owes money to and the private individuals, we don't have debtor's prison, so he could kind of get away with that scot-free, but you can't get away with owing a, a lot in back taxes, for example. You can't get away with that. Um, that you can go to prison for. So if it's tax fraud, if it's insurance fraud, whatever it is, there's a lot of there there, and they're investigating it, and you just need to hope that they find something and make an ironclad case, and also they didn't effectively and efficiently use the loopholes that exist to do things that are unethical but still legal. So I guess we'll find out, but they're, they're looking in the right places. That's the point of me doing this segment, is to tell you they're looking in the right places. They're on to him. It's just a matter of if they could follow through or not. All right, next. So the last chance lawsuit for Trump, the Hail Mary lawsuit, has officially been thrown out by the Supreme Court. Here's a Sky News report on exactly this. The U.S. Supreme Court has rejected a lawsuit seeking to dump millions of votes in four key battleground states. The motion was brought forward by the Texas Attorney General and attempted to discount ballots in Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin over alleged election fraud. In a statement, the Supreme Court says Texas has not demonstrated a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections. All other pending motions are dismissed as moot. The Texas Republican Party chairman has responded suggesting law-abiding states should form a union. In a statement, Alan West says, this decision establishes a precedent that says states can violate the US Constitution and not be held accountable. This decision will have far-reaching ramifications for the future of our constitutional republic. Perhaps law-abiding states should bond together and form a union of states that will abide by the Constitution. U.S. President Donald Trump posted one of his latest campaign videos moments after the verdict had been delivered. The video questions the integrity of the country's electoral processes. America deserved an honest election. This is what they got. Suitcases of ballots added in secret in Georgia. Dead people voting in Wisconsin. A money for vote scheme in Nevada. Poll watchers denied access in Pennsylvania faulty ballot drop boxes, and clerks facing felony charges in Michigan. The evidence is overwhelming. Call your legislators. Demand they fight for honest elections. So you would think that when there's about 50 lawsuits 
and you lose 49 of them, that the right would get it. And that even the hardcore Trump people and the hardcore Republicans would be like, listen, it is what it is. You had your day in court. That's all you could ever ask for. Oh, you think there was something really fishy with this election? You think that, you know, it's, uh, it can and should be overturned because it's illegitimate. Okay, well, go ahead and make your case. You were given the opportunity to make your case. And you failed every single time. You want to know why? Because you're wrong. You're wrong. Joe Biden won the popular vote by over 7 million. Imagine a situation where Trump won the popular vote by over 7 million, but Democrats were trying to take it from him. How would MAGA react in that situation? I think we know. But put aside the popular vote, even though we shouldn't, by the way, even though you shouldn't, but putting aside the popular vote, he has 306 electoral college votes. It's really not that close. And you still sued. You know, in some of the cases, yes, the evidence was presented, and it was nothing. In fact, there were instances where they claimed, oh, my God, this is fraudulent, and then in court they didn't accuse fraud. Why? Because there was no evidence of fraud. You have to move beyond out-of-context Twitter videos that are 15 seconds long. You have to move beyond hearsay comments from people who are obviously mentally unbalanced, like evidence. That's not evidence. And so when they were given their day in court, they lost, and many of them are still holding on. And I don't get it. Like, now you have a situation. By the way, these are oftentimes super conservative courts. The Supreme Court is 6-3 conservative. And they threw out the Texas lawsuit. They didn't even have standing. God, guys, think about it. Texas is suing because they think, well, we think these four states should overturn the results in these four states. You don't even have standing. Those states would have to sue. And by the way, in the instances where there were lawsuits in those states, they were already thrown out anyway. So you can't, like, what what did they think was going to happen? Honestly, it's embarrassing. It really is embarrassing. It doesn't matter. Ideologically, it doesn't even matter what you believe. You could disagree with me on everything ideologically. But when you look at the way everything unfolded, you accept the results. I thought it was the most embarrassing, pathetic thing ever when Hillary lost and the Democrats had to, for emotional protection, they developed this whole narrative of like, Trump is a Manchurian candidate from Russia and he was really installed by Russia. That's what happened. I watched that and I'm like, these guys are pathetic because they just can't, they can't wrap their mind around the fact that Donald Trump won. They can't do it. And so they create an alternative, an alternative reality. The same shit is happening now on the Republican side where Biden clearly won and they're like, no fraudulent, illegitimate, the ballots that came in later all went for Biden. Yeah, because they were mail-in votes. And Trump was telling people, don't vote mail-in. And Democratic, uh, you know, Democrats usually win the mail-in votes anyway. Because turns out, liberals don't want to vote in person during a goddamn pandemic. This isn't surprising. We knew it was going to break that way. And Trump won on the day of the votes from election day. Trump had a lead in all the states when they counted those votes first. Because, yeah, more Republicans vote on Election Day. You didn't say that was fishy. You didn't say, well, this went 60-40 to Trump. Fishy. No. That's how they rolled in. And the mail-ins broke for Biden. Not fishy. But if you think it is, okay, prove it in court. Oh, you didn't. So hold your L, bitch. It's just so obnoxious. Accept it. You lost. You got draxed. But this was it. This was like the last chance lawsuit. There's no outs now. 
There's no outs. As I'm talking to you right now, the Electoral College is meeting and certifying the results. Individual states have already certified it. Now the Electoral College is going to certify it. There's no way out. You lost. It's done. Even the 6-3 conservative court said there's no evidence here. So don't listen. Don't take my word for it. You don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to like me, anything. If you're watching this and you're a Trump person, take the word of the conservative courts that said there's nothing here. Or you could keep living in your fantasy world and you'll be equally as pathetic to the people who think Donald Trump is Vladimir Putin's puppet and he's a Manchurian candidate. All right, Jake Tapper time. Jake Tapper surprised me with this segment, I must say. He praised Donald Trump, who he usually slams. Let's see what his argument is. Paraphrase and flip William Shakespeare. I come to you at the end of the show today to praise. Donald Trump, not to bury him. Outgoing President Trump deserves our thanks for approving Operation Warp Speed, which helped to bring us the COVID vaccine. He has rethought trade deals. He has reimagined peace in the Middle East. He has pushed foreign policy consensus to put more of a priority on bringing U.S. service members home, even if his follow-through has been rather wanting. These are legitimate achievements. There are other ways outgoing President Trump perhaps inadvertently, has done us a service. The relationship between the news media and the U.S. government should not be anywhere near as antagonistic as it's been under President Trump, but it should be adversarial. Maybe Trump has been right to not attend the dinners where politicians and reporters cozy up to each other. Maybe he exposed as unseemly something that should not return to normal. The president has also exposed the problem that so many of our standards and norms in the U.S. seem to be based upon the honor system. There isn't, for instance, an explicit law against the U.S. president trying to extort a foreign country to provide dirt on a domestic political opponent. A government upheld upon the honor system only works if everyone involved has honor. This seems something that legislators should re-examine. And then finally, let us look at the events of the last week where the president pushed an insane lawsuit, the big one, he called it, from the Attorney General of Texas. It was a clownish legal brief based on conspiracy theories and outright lies. And 18, 18 state attorneys general, some U.S. senators, and the majority of the House Republican Caucus, 126 members supported it. President Trump did us a favor by exposing these elected officials. They are definitionally people who signed on to a desperate desire to subvert the will of the American people to disenfranchise voters in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan based on lies and conspiracy theories putting an immoral and corrupt power grab above democracy. Yeah, so that was weird. (laughs) That whole segment was kind of weird. Let's go through it. So what things is it legitimate to say thank you to Trump for, and what things is it not legitimate at all? 
So the first thing he brings up is the COVID vaccine and like rushing the COVID vaccine. My response to that is, I don't know how much credit he deserves because I don't know how much him barking actually changed anything. Now, if him pressuring pharmaceutical companies and if him constantly being on top of that and telling people we need this now, we need this now, we need this now, if that actually sped up the process, then I will give him credit and he deserves credit. And you know what? Maybe that is what happened. Maybe because there were stories of him like barking at pharmaceutical CEOs and being like, we need this now, get to fucking work on it. Um, But my understanding was it doesn't matter how much he says that the process is going to take however long it's going to take because you have to make sure that the vaccine works and is safe. And so there's a certain amount of time that you need in order to get it done. Um, So I don't know how much of an impact he had, but if he did have an impact on that front, sure, then I'll give him credit. Of course, he deserves credit on that front. Sure. I have no problem doing that at all. So I think that point from Jake Tapper is the least objectionable. Um, And I understand giving credit if indeed he did help a lot. The rest I'm not. I don't know about it. So he says he thanks Trump for like bringing or at least trying to bring troops home, even though he didn't do it in like the best way. And it's like that I'm not giving credit on because he didn't actually do it. And even even the appearance of it is not it. It's still keeping thousands of troops in the Middle East. Okay, so you reduce the numbers. Whoop-de-doo. Obama did that also. Did I give Obama credit for reducing the numbers? No, I'll give you credit when you actually bring them home. So that stupid head fake that everybody falls for. He's using the language of withdrawing and then just not withdrawing. It's exactly what Obama did. Nonsense. If anything, it's more dishonest, right? Because you're staying there and you're pretending like you're not. At least be honest about what you're doing. No, we're going to stay there. We're going to have thousands of troops there. What are you going to do? At least that's honest. Um, So I do not give him credit on that. Then he brings up the redoing trade deals. In theory, that would be something to to give him credit for, but the terms of the deals are not great. Like, you know, meet the new NAFTA, same as the old NAFTA. There's a giant giveaway to pharmaceutical companies in there. I'm not going to give him credit for that. Are there some provisions in the USMCA, the new NAFTA, that are better than the old NAFTA? Sure. I'll give him credit for the specific ones, but overall, no. Overall, you blew a real opportunity here to actually renegotiate it in a way that's good, so that's not good. Um, then he says he wants to thank Trump for making the news media more adversarial. To which I reply, they're going to go right back to not being that with the next administration. Like, if Trump permanently made the news media more adversarial, good. But they're not going to do that. They only go after Trump usually on things that are silly. They don't even go after him on the most important substantive things. Um, but, like, the second... Biden's in the White House, they're going to go right back to going soft on him, just like they were soft on Obama. Um, Because the media are, the mainstream media, it's an elitist circle. And if you're in the club, they treat you kindly. If you're not in the club, they don't treat you kindly. It's that simple. None of it's ideological, none of it's substantive, none of it's policy-based. And so, yeah, they may be adversarial now, but they are going to go back to what they were before. He's right, by the way, that like it's good that we don't have the White House Correspondence Center, but they're going to go right back to having the White House Correspondence Center, I imagine. So we'll see on that front. And then finally, he, said, he thanks Trump for ripping the mask off of Republicans and showing that they're anti-democracy. This is a funny one because it's like the, you know, thank you for being so terrible. That's basically what he's saying. But listen, we already kind of knew that the Republicans were like this, right? You know, like look at the 2000 election. In the recount, Al Gore won, you know, but... George W. Bush was given Florida. I mean, this is like, 
That's just one example, but clearly they're not like, you know, principled in favor of democracy. Look at the voter ID shit they try to do. Look at what they're trying, look at, they're trying to do the, you know, the signature matching where it's like, let me see a minor difference in your signature from this thing to this thing, and now I want to dismiss your vote as a result of that. That's deeply anti-democratic. So of course they're anti-democratic. We already knew that. Jake Tapper's acting like, well, before Trump, we didn't know. Because you're a little silly. That's why you didn't know. You're not paying attention, or you're willing to give people the benefit of the doubt when they don't deserve it and haven't earned it at all. So anyway, weird segment. I never thought I'd see Jake Tapper thanking Trump. The only thing where it might make sense is the COVID vaccine. Outside of that, I don't know what he's doing, but not great point. All right, y'all. We are done for the day, baby. I love you very much. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great rest of the day. Peace.